morning, Willoughby Church. It is good to be with you this morning. As mentioned, my name is Kevin Lobert. I'm a youth pastor just down the way at Langley Emanuel CRC at your sister church. Uh, and about 10 years ago, I went with about 15 youth and leaders to this movie, and it was called Noah. It was Hollywood's take on the Bible story. Uh, it was directed by Darren Aronofsky, and this was an attempt to put together on screen one of the greatest and sort of craziest stories ever told. I've got a picture of that movie right at the, at the beginning here. It was, a, it was a fairly big movie back then. Uh, it, uh, it, it had actors like Russell Crowe in it, who played Noah, Anthony Hopkins, who played a 950-year-old Methuselah, and Emma Watson was in it as well, but her character was, I think she was Hermione Granger coming back and was like Shem's future wife. Her character was a little more confusing. But with most depictions, Hollywood depictions of Bible stories, this one was a little bit disappointing. Now, in some ways, it was fine. I think the ark looked pretty neat, and apparently they followed uh, close attention to the biblical instructions on how to build it. Uh, some of the special effects were pretty good, too, but, I mean, it's 2024 at there, or 2014 at that point, so that's to be expected. However, it definitely took some major liberties when it went about telling the story that were very different from the biblical narrative. If you watch the movie, you won't have a hard time seeing these. And please note, this is not like me giving a ringing endorsement for this movie. The only reason I bring it up is this. It was fascinating to see how the director portrayed God in this movie. Now, granted, it's a story about God becoming so fed up with the sin in the world that he destroys everything, but basically the only emotion that God had in this movie was rage, was just full-blown rage. And I realized that, that this, this is the God that most people see in this story. This is the God that people wrestle with. In this story, a, a furious God set out for destruction. But we have to ask, what is the point of Noah's Ark? What is the point of this story, and how do we see God in it? And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, Jenna did a great job reading that story with the kids, so we don't have to read all four chapters of this story this morning. Uh, but we are going to work through the whole story as we pick at the narrative that is Noah's Ark. We are going to look, though, today at a little chunk of text. We're going to read the first four verses of Genesis chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please open those up. If you have your Bible on your phone, I welcome you to pull that out. You can follow along there as well. Um, please keep your Bibles open, your Bible apps open too, because like I said, we're going to be looking at the whole story and bouncing around a bit. But here we go. In Genesis 8, the first four verses, it reads like this. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water had receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down. And on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The word of the Lord. Now, 
for those of you that tune out during the kids' message that Jenna was leading, this is the story of Noah's Ark, all right? God sees the amount of sin in the world, and he sets off to destroy all things. He spares Noah and his family and, and a pair or more, if you read your Bibles, of every creature on earth so that life can move on afterwards. Noah builds this ark. His family gets inside. All of the animals come aboard, except for the dinosaurs. They miss the boat figuratively and literally, and that was their demise probably. God then floods the earth. He kills everything that's not in that ark. Noah chills out in the boat for over a year. The waters subside, and the animals and Noah get off the boat and begin their work of repopulating the world. So the question remains, what is the point of Noah's ark? What is the point of this story? And the big takeaway that I hope we get this morning is this, is that God always remembers his people. God always remembers his people. That is the main point of the Noah's Ark story. But how can that be? You might be sitting there thinking, how can that be? How can we be sure that this is what Noah's Ark is about? See, oftentimes I think we get caught up in the details of the story or, or the massive implications of certain events or, or we sometimes um, impose our own presuppositions or our assumptions onto what is happening, which, which causes us sometimes to miss what's actually going on. And with Noah, I think this happens a lot. We, we often get caught up in the craziness of how many animals there might have been on this boat. Or we forget to realize maybe how sinful the world must have been for God to have done this. Or, or we impose our own thoughts that, that God is just this soft, loving, gentle God, and so this can't be the God of this story. And so we begin to believe the myths that this is only a story of an angry God filled with rage, showing his wrath on all creation, and that God since that day has somehow changed which is a huge theological fallacy. See, the goal today is, is to wipe away the myth of Noah's Ark and, and get us past the distractions of the animals or of 600-year-old people or the awe factor that comes with a story this tremendous. And the best way to do that with this story is to look at how it was written. You see... The content of stories is important, of course, but sometimes the way that that content is arranged is equally, if not more, important. And that is the case here with Noah's Ark. One of the most classic structures of ancient literature, and it's, it's still used today, is called a chiasm. Now, please bear with me here because I'm going to see some of your eyes gloss over in a moment. Don't go rolling them because we're going to be talking about sentence structure. I promise you this is going to be fun, okay? Now, a chiasm is a literary device used to highlight meanings or emphasize points by repeating lines in a pattern. So people will repeat lines to emphasize a point and highlight meanings, and that's essentially what a chiasm is. There, I just did one. It makes more sense maybe if you see it, so we're going to look at a bunch right now, okay? There are two types of chiasms out there. The first one uses repetition to highlight meaning. Their very simple one on the screen here is from Mark 2, verse 20, uh, 27. Or Mark 2, verse 27. It's, it's as simple as they get. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If you assign letters to each of those thoughts, it looks like this. A, B, B, A. 
Sabbath, man, man, Sabbath. You can look at the next slide there. We'll show that out there. See? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, these chiasms can get a little bit more complex, though. Daniel 6 is actually a chiasm as well. The story of Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. Again, you'll see it up on the screen there. Notice how the story both begins and ends. The A's in the diagram there, if you will, with Daniel being prosperous in Darius's reign. Then the B's, the next thing down, the second from the top and the bottom, they are both decrees signed by Darius. The positions are taken, and at first, uh, first by Daniel, and then at the end there by Darius. Then C's, the next one's up, they show Daniel's enemies trying to kill Daniel, and then at the, at the back end, Daniel's enemies getting killed. Now there's some irony there, but again, it's the same thing, just inverted. Finally, the central D's there, you'll see, are about deliverance. First, Darius hopes that Daniel will be delivered, and then he witnesses Daniel's deliverance. So that's one type of chiasm, all right? One that uses repetition to highlight meanings. But there's a second type, one that highlights a focal point, one that highlights a central theme found in the story. So instead of those ones being A, B, B, A, it goes A, B, C, B, A. All right, we're going to look at one right now. Psalm 110 is a very clean example of this type of chiasm. Again, you can see it on the screen there. This psalm is seven verses long, and verse four is the central theme to the whole psalm. So verses one and seven, the A's, they're about the Lord installing a king. Verses two and six are about the king being sent out to conquer. The C's, verses three and five, are about the days of power. And finally, verse 4 in this psalm, the central theme to the chiasm, the central verse of the psalm itself, it stands in its own as the focal point. And the focal point of this psalm is that God makes an oath that the Davidic king will reign forever. So that is how chiasms work. All right, I want to emphasize that in this type of chiasm, the central theme is the focal point to the whole piece. Does that all make sense? Yeah, we're nodding along? Okay, good, because honestly, like, the whole message, like, relies on us understanding that bit. Because I'm telling you this, because Noah's Ark is one gigantic chiasm. It is four chapters long, Genesis 6 to Genesis 9, and they have verses that repeat or are the inverse of each other all the way through and then all the way back through the whole story, except for one part right in the smack dab in the middle. Genesis 8, verse 1. The purpose of Noah and the central theme to the entire story is this. But God remembered Noah. That's the point of the Noah's Ark story. That's the point of the Noah's Ark chiasm, that God remembered Noah. Well, that can't be true, some of you might be saying. You might be thinking it can't be that simple to have all that happen, the boat, the animals, the flood, the raven, the dove, the rainbow. It can't all be about God remembering Noah. Can it? Well, again, look at the screen here. It's very tiny, but I hope you can see it. If you can't and you want a copy of it, I will make sure the office gets one. I will send one to Tamara. But let's look at this for a second. It goes from A to M, or sorry, to N, and then back again, with N being the central theme of this story. So first, you are introduced to Noah, and the story ends with Noah once again. Then you get to his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They are mentioned at the end. God then uh, announces that an ark needs to be built, and again, the ark is mentioned at the back end of the story. 
God announces that a flood will happen. And then at the end of the story, God announces that a flood won't happen anymore. All right? You get a covenant at the beginning with Noah. At the end, you get a covenant with all of mankind. There are seven days waiting for the flood. That happened there in 7, 4 to 10. And at the end, you have seven days of waiting for the waters to subside. You have an entry into the ark at I there, and you have a, a raven and a dove leaving the ark there in I. All right? J, you've got 40 days. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm getting my numbers mixed up here. You get God who, uh, uh, 40 days of the flood, and then you get 40 days of waiting for the flood to end. You have the mountains being covered, then you have the mountaintops being seen, you have 150 days of the waters prevailing, you have 150 days of the water subsiding, and then right in the middle, right in the middle, you have God remembers Noah. That's fascinating, right? Everything that happens in these four chapters has a repeated or an inverted outcome on the opposite side of the story in the exact same but reverse order, except for the part about God remembering Noah. So then why is this detail so important? And why do we miss it in this story? Well, we miss it because, again, we get caught up in the story between the animals and his boat and, and, and imagining what it would be like to be there and the startling reality that this actually happened. It might make us think that this isn't a story about God remembering Noah. It might make us think that this is actually a story about God forgetting everything else. But if you look not just at the pattern of this chiasm here, which highlights this rather clearly, but if you also look at the pattern of Scripture coming out of this story, you realize that this theme happens over and over again. And it all starts with Noah. First, God remembers Noah in the flood. And then in Genesis 19, 29, we read about how God remembered Abraham when he saved Lot. In Exodus 30, 22, we hear how God remembered Rachel and opened her womb to have a baby. In Exodus 2, 24, we see how God remembered the nation of Israel when they couldn't stop whining about being in the desert. In 1 Samuel 1.19, God remembers Hannah when she too desires a son. In Judges 16.28, Samson asks God to remember him to help take down the Philistines. In Psalm 25.7, David cries out to God to remember him and save him from his enemies. In 2 Kings 20, verse 3, God remembers Hezekiah and saves the city of Jerusalem because of his prayer. And in Jeremiah 15, God remembers Jeremiah in the midst of his suffering. And all of those examples are just the beginning. I didn't mention when God remembered Joseph when he was sold to the Egyptians, or Moses when he fled from his homeland, or Joshua when he battled Jericho, or Ruth when she was widowed, or Elijah when he was seeking refuge from Jezebel, or Jonah when he was cast into the whale, or Daniel when he was cast into the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were cast into the furnace, or Esther when, his people, when her people were in captivity. And let's talk about Zechariah for one second. So Zechariah, if you remember the story, at the end of the Old Testament, he's the father of John the Baptist, the man who would, who would ready the nation for Jesus' coming. Now, Zechariah was a faithful servant of God, but, but he doubted that God would allow his wife Elizabeth to become pregnant, so he loses his voice for that. But sure enough, miraculously, Elizabeth gets pregnant and has their son John. See, God intervening in this story of Zechariah is, is the first time in a long time that God had been visibly working in the lives of his people. He was silent for about 400 years before then. And many people 
back then had thought that God had forgotten this nation, forgotten his people. But through Elizabeth's pregnancy and the birth of John and the faithfulness of Zechariah, God showed that he had remembered his people all along. And guess what the name of Zechariah means? The Lord remembered. You see, God remembers his people. He always has. And Noah here at the beginning of Genesis is is the first story where this is not only true, but it's central to the story. I think on this Remembrance Day weekend, this is appropriate. Uh, It's an important weekend for us because we do need to remember uh, and honor those who have given their lives for us to have freedom in this country, freedom for us to get together in this church and worship God as we do. Freedom we have because of lives lost. Remembrance Day is a day where we acknowledge those who have lost their life for us and we honor their sacrifice. And, and I, I'm not, I don't mean to minimize that reality because that is something we must remember, but it's also a very good weekend for us to remember that this is true with our God as well. See, Noah's Ark points us to this theme of remembrance. And it's important for us to remember the sacrifice that our God made for us as well. Because the ultimate message of God remembering his people is when Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again for us. For us. Jesus died on the cross remembering us. Jesus came and and he lived this perfect life that you and I, we fail to live each and every day. And then he died a death that you and I deserve to die. He took the weight of the sin on his shoulders and, and he carried it to the cross and into the grave. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead and he defeated sin and death forever. And as now he's reigning on high in heaven, mediating on our behalf. And he did all of this because he remembers you, because he remembers me. He loves you more than you will ever know. And he did that because he remembers us. Now, when Jesus was on that cross about to die, he was hanging there with two other men. Now, one of those two men ridiculed Jesus, but the other did not. In Luke 23, verses 42 to 43, this man, after rebuking the other criminal, he looks at Jesus, and what do you think he says? He doesn't say, forgive me. He doesn't say, save me. He says, remember me. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even this criminal, even this criminal was remembered by God. And he had to be a pretty bad dude to be hanging out with Jesus at that point in his life. See, through the cross, God remembers his people. He saves them. On that day, God paid the ultimate sacrifice by by giving up his son for our sins. God saved his people. But this time, with the cross, instead of flooding the world and wiping out all of the sin, he bore it and he he took it upon himself onto the cross and he died for us all. 
Again, only to raise up three days later. The ultimate act of God remembering his people is the gift of salvation. And you know what? The Noah's story, Noah's ark story, points us to this truth as well. Genesis 9, 12 to 15, after the flood is done, God is speaking to Noah and he says this. This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. And we think of a rainbow when we think of all the colors and we think how pretty, what a nice symbol God used. And it's so beautiful, it's so peaceful, it's so unassuming. But let me ask you this, what is a bow? It's a weapon. A bow is a weapon and I assume it was a prominent weapon in Noah's day. And so here God is using a weapon as a symbol. But, and this is key, and the Children's Storybook Bible does an excellent job pointing this out too. So if you missed it, hear this. God takes this bow, and he's decided he's not going to point it down at the world anymore. He's not going to destroy the world and kill all of the things that are sinful. He's not going to destroy again. Instead, he takes the bow, and he draws it upward. He draws it upward. And he aims the bow at himself, symbolically anyways, and he says, I will take this. I will become the sacrifice. Rather than destroying you, I will destroy my own son. And in that way, I will rid the world of sin and death forever. That is powerful imagery, isn't it? The rainbow in the sky becomes more than a sign of how God won't destroy the world again. It's a reminder that God took that punishment himself. He took that death from us so that we might live. It's, it's a sign of the gospel truth found in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection all the way back in Genesis 9. So how does all of this apply to us then? How does all of that apply to us now? And I think, to be honest with you, truthfully, the fact that God has saved us, that he has wiped our sins clean, that, that he offers us continuous grace and mercy, that should be enough, right? That is application enough for our lives because that is good news. That is the good news, the greatest news we can receive. But God is also an active God. So in all of the biblical examples of God remembering his people, he also graciously intervened in their lives. He gave children to Rachel and Hannah. He gave victory to Samson and Joshua. He gave peace and rest to David and Elijah. He intervened in Israel's life time and time again. And of course, he remembered Noah, like we read this morning, and saved his family from the flood. God intervenes. And God remembers us, too. But he doesn't remember us from afar. He's not just sitting in heaven wishing us the best. He is constantly active, intervening in our lives in amazing ways. Sometimes, though, we don't actually realize how he is intervening. I mean, I think we can acknowledge the times in our lives where we're feeling all right. 
Most of us here have homes, or we have food, or income, or education. We have community with each other. But what about the times when God intervenes in our lives, but it doesn't look like he's doing it? Maybe it's in a scholarship we don't get, so we end up going to a different school that he has in store for us. Maybe it's in a promotion we don't get, because the job we're currently doing is allowing us to disciple his people more faithfully. Maybe it's in a job we lose, because God's going to use our life in a different environment now. Maybe it's in an accident we're involved in, because God needed to redirect your life's path to go down a different course. Briefly, that is my story. In grade 12, I was in, I was at basketball provincials. Um, I was a I played sports growing up, and I was a pretty avid soccer player. In grade 12, I was getting scouted for different universities uh, at that time, and it looked like I was going to get a, nothing crazy, but a scholarship to some local school, and I was pretty excited about that. We went off to basketball provincials, and on the way home, we were in a school bus accident. Our school bus actually coming back from Unity Christian. I went to Pacific Christian on the island, and on Highway 1, it was snowing on the way home. We got cut off and skidded into a ditch and went this way, and I fell from the left side of the bus onto my basketball coach, got pretty significant tissue damage in my neck, shoulders, and back, couldn't play soccer for the rest of the year, lost all attempts on a scholarship, and was very angry at God about all of that. But because of that scholarship, I didn't go to wherever God was, or wherever I was planning on going. I ended up going to Redeemer University on no soccer scholarship at all, on a school that had no idea who I was. And there I met my wife, and there I felt God's pull to be a youth pastor, and it is because of that bus crash that I ended up over there, and it was because I was over there that I ended up right here today. So sometimes God uses the things in our lives to alter our life, and in the moment, it seems awful. But God's working. God is working. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that everything happens for a reason. That is a dangerous cliche that somehow worked itself into Christianese jargon. But what is true is that God works in all situations, no matter how bad they may seem, because God always remembers his people. Even if things look dire, we can rest in the knowledge that God remembers his people. He always has. We can trust in God's sovereignty we can trust in God's mercy, and we can know that God is gracious. And as a foundation to all of this, to know that he saved us with his life, death, and resurrection, we can know that in our hearts because God remembers his people. And that is such an important truth for us today. And one that is at the heart of this Noah's Ark story and in the Bible narrative as a whole. And so my prayer for you today, Willoughby Church, is this. In the good, in the bad, in the uncertain, please know down to your core that God remembers you. And as hard as that is to see sometimes, I pray that you know he is intervening in your life and active in your community right now, whether you see it or understand it or not. Amen? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who remembers your people. You remembered Noah in the ark. You remembered so many people throughout the drama of Scripture. And God, we know that you have remembered us because we know the truth found in your son's life, death, and resurrection. 
God, we thank you for that grace and mercy which you grant us each and every single day. And as we go from here, may we know that you remember us and you are actively involved in our lives as well. May we be agents of that grace and mercy in this world. May you teach us to love. May you teach us to lean on the truth. And may we be advocates for you and your gospel truth in this world. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.